Hey there, church. Hey. Want to welcome all of you across the network. Special shout out to our peeps in Bettendorf, the men of Kiwani, and guys at Kiwani, so glad you're part of our church family. I want to say thank you again for those of you invested in our artistic work alongside the Parable series. It's been invaluable. It's added depth and layers to the conversation, so thanks so much for sharing that with us. I want to welcome all of you here at Rock Island and also welcome those tuning in online. This is actually our last week in our parable series, and it's been a great journey this summer, uh, one that I'm grateful that God has worked in and through as we've leaned in. Because quite honestly, we, we serve a God who whenever we come before, before Him with a willingness and, and a desire to hear from Him, He speaks and He leads. And He has done that through this parable's journey, done it in lots of different ways as we've looked at a variety of parables, all of them from the book of Luke, uh, some of them more popular, some less popular because it's harder to wrestle with the content of that particular parable. Some familiar, some less familiar. They've gone to different audiences, different subject matters, contexts, but each of them communicating deep spiritual truths in the context of simple stories. And depending on how you count them, there are 46 recorded parables of Jesus. Last week, we looked at one of the shortest, a, a micro, a mini parable, if you would. It isn't the shortest. The, the shortest is actually in Luke as well, but it's chapter 4, verse 23. You can write this down and check it out later. Luke chapter 4, 23 is just three words, and it's a parable where Jesus says, physician, heal yourself. Now, many Bibles call that a proverb when they translate it, but what Jesus literally said, according to Luke, was the word for parable, parabole, and he's declaring that short little thing to be a parable. Having spent time in a short parable last week, acknowledging that that's the shortest one, we're going to do the exact opposite today, my friends, and we're going to go to the longest. Are you up for that? Oh, yes, you are. It's going to be good. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and start turning to Luke chapter 15, because that's where we find the longest recorded parable of Jesus. It's 391 words in the Greek, and it's 500 words in the English, depending on the English translation, it may vary slightly. And it's called the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son. Now, both of those titles are a bit of misnomer, because you've got to understand something. Headers and titles in Scripture, along with chapter and verse references, are all things that were added over time to the text to help us find our way through it, to reference it, to, to get a sense of what it is. And sometimes they're very helpful. And, but sometimes those headers and, and things like that are, are limiting. And in this particular case, I think this might be a little bit limiting, because this is not just a parable about a wayward son. This is a parable about a family with two sons. In fact, as we get into the text today and start to unpack it a bit, it may make more sense to call it the parable of the lost sons or two lost sons. We're going to dig down into this, but as we do and unpack why I'm saying that, I just want you to have in your headspace, especially if this is a familiar, familiar parable for you, that this is not just about the story of one son. It's more than that. Now, as we get ready to read into this or dive into this, Jesus tells this parable after he tells two other parables, the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and then he tells the parable of the lost sons. Now, listen, some people call this entire Luke 15 chapter the lost chapter because it has three parables about things that are lost, a sheep, a coin, and sons. Now, as we get ready to lean into this, though, I want you to be open to what Holy Spirit wants to say how God wants to speak to you, have eyes to see and ears to hear what he wants to say to us as we lean in. So let's get down to it. We're going to dive into the longest parable, recorded parable of Jesus. This is Luke 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow here on the screen or you can follow along in your note guide. 
Here we go, starting at verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. So he's continuing the point he made in the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now this is a very highly offensive request and inappropriate because he's essentially saying, hey dad, I want your money more than I want you. And it's really an awkward moment, yet the father actually agrees. The father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, the word there between is between, and it's not equally. In fact, what ends up happening is the younger brother actually gets a third of the estate, and the older brother gets two-thirds. It's not an equal 50-50. It's one-third and two-thirds. And the reason that is, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21 in the Old Testament law, it said that the firstborn in a family received a double portion of the inheritance. So in this dividing it among his sons, two-thirds goes to the older brother, one-third goes to the younger brother. Keep that in mind as we lean in here. Verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And this would have been highly offensive, humiliating for this young man. Not just because he was begging for a job and and starving, but because the Jews in the Old Testament law weren't supposed to eat pork. They weren't supposed to be eating pig flesh. And therefore, they had even applied that to not touching pigs. And so this would have been humiliating for him. Yet the young man was desperate. So the young man became, in that process, so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, and in the original language there is a hint of repentance in the word that's used, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Again, all of that, that whole speech is like a lean towards repentance. It's beautiful. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. I got to tell you, that's one of my favorite sentences in all of Scripture, that even though the son had left, the father still waited, the father still watched, the father still longed to welcome, and while he was still a long way off, he saw him coming. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's extravagant. That's That's what the love of the Father drives him to do. But then he does this next. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. It's an awesome moment. But now it's speech time. So here we go. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And before he can continue his speech... The father turns to the servants and he says, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. A robe, a ring, and sandals. Now these may be things he practically needed, but there's a nuance to each of them. The robe meant distinction. The ring meant authority. And the sandals were the identity of a son. Because slaves are barefoot, sons are not. So there's distinction and authority and sonship There's a a significance of acceptance and position in those three things. 
Verse 23, and, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and now is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. The party started. Now listen, anytime someone moves from spiritual death to spiritual life. They move from being lost spiritually to being found spiritually. There is a party, and it's a party in heaven where the angels celebrate. And that's not just something we think happens. We know this because Jesus said it. In fact, we back up to verse 10 after he tells the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says, this is what happens. There's a party. The angels celebrate anytime someone who is lost spiritually is found spiritually. And so there's not only a party taking place in the parable, there's a party taking place in, in heaven when there is someone that moves from being lost to being found. And this party is happening. It's a wonderful moment. But there's more, there are more people in this family. So let's keep reading. There's more family involved. So verse 25, Meanwhile, the older son who was in the fields working, when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he got all excited and he went and he partied with everyone. No, that's not what happened. Verse 26, and he asked the servants what was going on. Your brother is back. He was told that your father has killed a fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and you never once, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by my side and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost but now he is found. All right. That's the longest recorded parable of Jesus. It's the parable of the two lost sons in my mind as I read through this and study it because in reality, they're both lost. They both experience a season of being lost. They, they both have need. They both have struggles. They're both deeply loved by the Father, but they both struggle to love him in return with that same love. This is the parable of two lost sons. It falls in that chapter, the lost chapter, after the lost sheep, the lost coin, we get to this story that unpacks two lost sons. And it starts with this beginning scenario building moment, but then I see it splitting into two parts. The story of the younger brother and then the story of the older brother. It's a very interesting dynamic. One where the stories are connected, but they're different. They intersect, but they're distinct. Both sons struggling. In fact, this parable of two lost sons actually helps you and I, positions you and I to understand a struggle or reality we all face. And it's just the brokenness of relationship between us and God. Based on who we, who, what we choose to do, where we go, the things that we do in life facilitate a brokenness in relationship with God until we come to a return moment. And in this particular story, we see that playing out in the lives of two young men. The brokenness between relationship with God and us. And it really invites us to choose something better. Wherever you're at today in your relationship with God, the invitation out of this parable is to, is to choose something more, something better. Now what Jesus does in this parable, like he does with many parables, is he puts two things in contrast, in comparison. 
He does it with workers. He does it with servants. He does it with two other sons in a different parable. And he's doing the same thing in this parable with two different sons. He's laying out this comparison and contrasting. And if we're going to fully understand the parable in the moment, we need to understand who Jesus told this to. The context that he gave the parable. Because he's actually in a space with some average citizens and some citizens with complications. uh, Notorious sinners, the scripture calls them. But there's also a dynamic with religious leaders and some government officials. We know this from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, and we back up into it. It says, The tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So the context that Jesus tells this involves some people from the Jewish community, people who were Jewish religious leaders. It involves some government officials. It it involves this kind of mixed group dynamic. And sometimes when we read this parable, if you are familiar with it, we tend to think, well, you know, this is a parable that's just to strike at the Pharisees, almost a rebuttal to their complaining. And although there's a component of that in this, that's not all this is about. There is more to this parable. It's an, just as there's not just about one son, it's not just about a rebuttal to the Pharisees. It's actually an invitation. It's an invitation to a right relationship with God. Now, we talked last week about the idea that when we engage the study of the word, we can start with a cursory reading that's simplistic, but we need to study to get down to something that's complex so that we can then return to something that's simple where we can apply it. We start fast and shallow. We move to slow and deep. But then we get back to the best of both worlds where it's, where it's fast and deep. And, and we need to do that today in this parable. Because in a cursory look, most people when they read this tend to focus on the journey of the younger brother. It's an obvious central, central piece to this. Uh, his, his disrespectful request, his selfish and sinful choices, his humble return, the reception, all of that is a wonderful, beautiful, prominent part of the journey. And it's important because it helps us understand that no matter how far we wander or how long we wander, we can come back. We can. No matter how long you have wandered, you can come back. Because the reality, and this is something we looked at last week that I just want to come back to for a moment, that wandering from our purpose does not remove our purpose. We looked at this last week. You may remember it. When we wander from our God-given purpose, it doesn't remove the God-given purpose. It's still there. In fact, we can change it up and say when we turn from our purpose, our purpose is still there. When we run from our purpose, it doesn't remove our purpose. When we resist it, when we decline it, when we try to avoid it, when, when we sit in a space where we're ultimately just rejecting it altogether, it doesn't remove it. The purpose still remains. And, and the younger brother had to walk a journey that proves this out, that, that wandering doesn't actually remove our purpose. Removing or Wandering from the purpose doesn't actually remove it. It's still there, and we can come back. And I get the proclivity we have to look at this story and focus on the younger brother at the expense of some of the other components. Because we want to know, can we come back? We've all wandered. We've all made mistakes. We want to know if we and our loved ones can return. And the truth is, we can. When we come humbly and repentant, we can return. We can come home. Because wandering from our purpose doesn't actually remove our purpose. The younger brother wandered. And he does return, and there's a beautiful reconciliation in that. But that's not the only thing happening in here. To, to fully understand the breadth and width of this parable, we've got to keep, our, keep lines of sight to all three primary characters. 
And what I want to do for the next few moments is just do that, to make sure we're seeing both sons and, bo- and the father as well as we're trying to understand this. So let's just break this down. We have the younger brother who makes that request. He basically says to his dad, I want your money more than I want you. He has all kinds of complexity in his life, from his request to his appalling life choices. But what he does out of that, even out of wandering, he, rest- he comes back to his purpose. He comes to his senses, as we read, which is that repentance posture. And there's a beautiful brokenness in the story of the younger brother. And many of us can relate to it because we've all wandered. And we've experienced the love of God as we come back into relationship with him. It's beautiful yet broken. But he's not the only one with issues. Because we have the older brother in this story. And his conduct is decent. But his heart relationship with the father is just as broken, if not more broken. See, in Jewish culture of the day, a father could choose to give out his inheritance prior to his death. There was a legal space by which he could do that. But it wasn't to be done at the request of the youngest son. In fact, the reality is, an older brother in the context of a Jewish family was positioned to help be mediator in these kinds of subjects. A request like this, a younger brother requesting of the father to receive inheritance, the older brother was positioned to mediate. In fact, in some of those mediations, the father would entirely defer to the older brother. What's interesting about that for me is in in this particular case, the older brother apparently does nothing except receive his portion and go back to work. He appears to be silent amidst the request and doesn't seem to be managing his responsibility, his duty, his his role. The, The original audience listening to this parable would have picked up on that nuance. So in their minds, as they lean into this parable with Jesus, they did not view the older brother as innocent or a victim of his younger brother's choices alone. From the very beginning, they see that misstep of lack of engaging the complexity. He didn't overtly disobey, but he didn't manage his responsibility, his duty that he had before his father. And in his porch speech at the very end, we come to find out why. Because in the very end, as he's talking, we realize he's positioning reward over relationship. He's valuing money over people. He's valuing entitlement over reconciliation. In fact, what he's ultimately doing is he's choosing his own agenda above his father's agenda. And the interesting thing about the older brother is that he, like his younger brother, starts out. He he is actually positioning himself to value money over purpose to value gain for himself over gain for the family. His brokenness is just as overt as the brokenness of the younger brother when he leaves and squanders the family wealth. Yet the beauty is there's a choice that could be made in that complexity, even though these two chose poorly. This is a parable about two lost sons. One who receives and runs, but ultimately returns. And one who receives and remains but there's complexity in the way that he returns, and we'll look at that shortly. Both of them lacking a relationship with the father. So that gets us to the father, third, last, primary person in the parable. Because neither of these two sons actually understand who their father is, as loving and as gracious. They, They see him as a resource, they see him as an authority, they see him as a means to an end. And both of them push the father away. The younger brother does it by doing evil, not quote evil, evil, the older brother, does it by doing good, quote unquote good. 
Both of them push the father away. And both of them miss the reality of a loving father who's trying to bridge the gap between them. Trying to seek reconciliation, extending forgiveness, and choosing a posture of love. And if we're going to move through the parable from simplistic to complex to simple, the simple foundational reality I want to invite you to lay hold of. And if you take one thing away from this conversation, it's this very next reality. And it's that we are called to hold a love for people that surpasses our opinion of them. The reality of this parable is positioning us to understand that we are called to, love a peop- to hold a love for people that surpasses our opinion of them. You and I can engage people out of our perspective, or we can do it out of love. We can engage people out of our observations of who they are and their choices, or we can do it out of a posture of grace and mercy that's rooted in love. We get to choose how we engage people, and we, as the people of God, are called to hold a love for the people around us that is so significant and so, specific, or so rooted that it surpasses any opinion we may have about who they are and what they've done. That it's really love over opinion. See, when, when, we, when we actually position love over opinion in our lives, then we're positioning ourselves to trust God. When we switch that and we value opinion, our opinion, over love, we're putting trust in ourselves. We're actually making ourselves a self-appointed judge in the dynamic when we position opinion over love. Opinion over love focuses on mistakes. Opinion over love focuses on what isn't. But love over opinion focuses on grace and mercy. Love over opinion focuses on what can be in a dynamic. But that's a tough thing to hold in tension. And to be honest, I have had both successes and failures in maintaining, trying to maintain love over opinion. Every time that I have struggled to keep love over opinion, when opinion's trying to sneak its way around, has been in the context of dynamics where I've experienced great pain in relationship or an injustice in a relationship. In those spaces where there's great complexity, that opinion starts to try to sneak its way around to get on top and to dominate love. And every time I've allowed that to happen, even if it felt like it made sense, like it was logical or even justified, every time I've allowed that to happen, it has always led to more challenge and problem in, in, in me personally, in my relationship with that individual, or even more importantly, my relationship with God. When we allow opinion to reign over love, we make whatever complexity that, that caused that to happen in even worse. Because we're called to hold a love that surpasses our opinion. The reason this makes sense and why it's relevant into this specific parable is that the older brother got caught in that. He got, he got stuck. The older brother naturally and somewhat accurately had some opinions about his brother. <laughs> he, had, he had legitimate observations. They were facts about his brother. The problem was he allowed his opinion to lead instead of love. And what that ended up doing for him is positioning him to potentially lose everything he had, to, to miss the greater opportunity in choosing to let love rule and reign over opinion. It always leads to more problems. It led to more problems with him and his relationship with his father when he chose opinion over love. You and I are called to hold a love that surpasses our opinion of others. That's a tough thing to do until we release that and submit and obey the Father in each and every circumstance. You know, there's a, there's a guy named Bob Goff who's an author and 
I like to describe as an ambassador of the love of God. He's just a really great dude. He said this. He said, love has the kind of power cynicism only wishes it had. I, I like that. It, it's an invitation to a, a reality. Then when we want to embrace opinion or embrace cynicism, we don't actually end up in a space that empowers us to do much of anything. We actually end up in a space that can hurt rather than help. When we embrace opinion over love, that hurts. When we embrace love over opinion, there, that's where healing takes place. And cynicism only wishes it had the power that love holds. And the older brother in this narrative, man, he was embracing a cynicism because of what wasn't at the expense of what could be. And he ends up getting himself stuck. He ends up pouting on the porch. That, that's where we find him. He ends up on the porch pouting when everybody else is enjoying a party. I'm going to be, listen, we can end up in the same place when we're not willing to hold a love for people that actually surpasses our opinion of them. Now, I'm going to be honest about that reality. There is a challenge behind it. There's a complexity that makes it difficult to live into. I see it playing out in the relationship between the father and the sons and the sons themselves. This reality is simply that to love is to risk. To love is to risk. To love is to be vulnerable. Anytime we are going to step in a posture of love, there is a risk associated to it. To love is to risk. Whether we're risking for more in order for something that can be, or we're risking and exposing our heart with affection or exposing our heart in some form of vulnerability, to love is to risk. It's inherently part of the journey. C.S. Lewis once said something I think it's really appropriate. Nowhere in your note guide or on the screen, just want you to listen to these words. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. To love is to be vulnerable. To love anything at all is to have your heart wrung and possibly broken. My friends, to love is to risk. But we're called to hold a love that surpasses our opinion of those around us. That dynamic of having a broken heart, of having a heart wrung, plays out in the parable more than once. We, we see it playing out in what Jesus describes, and we actually see that to be a person who loves actually means being a person who's willing to pay the cost of that love, the sacrifice associated with it. The father in this parable had to have his heart wrung and his heart broken in order to be able to offer love to both of his sons. To love is to risk. Jesus, when, when he came, he lived and died and rose again, paying a cost that he didn't deserve so that we could experience life and relationship through him with God. The risk was not in his ability to make a pathway of redemption to God. The risk was that we wouldn't choose to take it. The risk is that we would wander away. The risk is that we'd end up pouting on a porch somewhere because we think we're entitled to something that we don't yet have. To love is to risk. And if we're going to love, it inherently means being willing to pay the cost. I'll step back one step from this. To be a person of integrity, to be a person of faithfulness, to be a person of character, inherently in this world, isn't just to be someone set apart or to be different, which it is different in a world that doesn't seem to embrace integrity and character any much anymore. It doesn't just mean being set apart. To be a person who loves, to be a person who's faithful with the character and integrity means being a person who's willing to bear the cost at the lack of integrity and faithfulness and character of others. 
process that for a moment. When we choose to be a person of character and faithfulness, it will ultimately often end up bearing the weight of those who choose not to be faithful or not to maintain character. And in this story, the father does that for both of his sons. He creates a space for them to choose differently, but it's also a space that costs him as he remains faithful and loving and gracious. The older brother in this dynamic wouldn't embrace the cost of loving because of the injustice of it all, because he just wouldn't let love prevail over his opinion. And he ends up becoming stuck in that dynamic. And I get people make poor choices, people do things that hurt us, people do things that cost us, people do things that exploit us. But we get to choose our response to that. We get to choose who we're gonna be in those complicated dynamics. And we can choose to love like the father in this parable and like Jesus, who while we were still a long way off, was willing to pay the cost to demonstrate the love that allows us to be reconciled to God. And if you wanna understand the fullness of what the love of God is, it's not simple kindness that's extended to us. The love of God is actually a willingness to embrace the suffering that comes along with embracing the very thing that stands in opposition to it. Because love is a risk. But we're called to hold a love that surpasses our opinion of others. And as the Father forgives, we're called to forgive as well. As the Father watches and waits and is willing to run, we're called to do the same. Jesus, while you and I were still a long way off, wandering, squandering, he was willing to risk and love so that we could be welcomed. That's a beautiful expression of what we're supposed to be doing. As, the, as God forgives others and us, we're to forgive others and ourselves as well. He watches, he waits, and he's willing to run. So how are we going to take this longest parable and put it into something simple that we can walk away from and walk away with? Well, every time Jesus told a parable, he actually did it to invite greater understanding of something, uh, either understanding of ourselves, understanding of a spiritual dynamic, dynamic, or an understanding of God. And so what I want to do is just create a moment for us to reflect on our own dynamics in the relationship with him and our lives to really create an opportunity to go to the deeper understanding, do some honest reflection, not just to understand what the parable says, but to understand who we are to be in relationship to it. And I want to do that with just three questions. And I want to just give you straight up what those three questions are and the three fill-ins, and then I want to talk through them. It's these three things. Where have you been? What will you do? Who will you be? Where have you been? What will you do? Who will you be? Now, so the first reality is where have you been? There's an opportunity and a need for us to assess where we have been, to be honest about where we have walked, where we have wandered, where our life journey and choices have led us, where we, where we have remained or where we have even wandered. In those spaces, there may be some, some opportunity for you to say, man, I, I've made some choices I regret. And you do acknowledge that before God. You say, wait a second, I, I, there are some things in my life where I took things that weren't necessarily mine at the time. Or, or in a moment where I, where I could have had a choice to do what was right, I chose to do what I wanted to do. In any of those spaces, there's an opportunity to be honest and saying, here's where I have been. That's a space of being able to confess, then being able to repent. But as you think about where you have been, don't forget the reality that no matter where you have wandered, how far you have wandered, you can return. Your purpose is not removed. Your purpose remains. So understanding where we have been allows us then to ask the question of what will you do? In light of where you've been in life, what will you do next? The younger brother chose to humbly return. 
The father chose to lovingly and graciously welcome. The older brother chose to really cut his nose off despite his face. He had an opportunity to experience a whole other level of relationship with his dad, with his brother, and, and even probably a relationship to the estate as a whole. But he, he chose to pout. He chose to sit on the porch and long for something different. So the question I have for you and I, what will we do next? In light of where we've been, what will we do? Which then positions us to ask the question, who will you be? See, we don't often get to pick the parable we're living out in life, but we do get to choose the person we're going to be in it. So who will you be? Will you be someone who recognizes that you've wandered like the younger brother and you need to come back to the father and repent and be reconciled? Maybe you're the older brother. You've been faithful for a season, but your faithfulness has turned into performance. Your faithfulness has turned into entitlement. And you need to soften the relationship with God and submit to what his love looks like and risk again. Or maybe you just simply need to be like the father because there's someone in your world that he wants you to forgive. Someone in your world that he wants you to run to because they are repentant. They are coming back humbly. And he wants you to run to them and extend forgiveness and grace. Who will you be in this next season? Out of where you've been, what will you do, but ultimately who you will be? I think the longest parable, recorded parable of Jesus is succinctly summed up in a next step reality by answering these three questions. Where have you been? What will you do? And who will you be? All of those are choices. Let me kind of put this in in more of a visual context because I understand for some, having a visual expression of this allows you to just take it in even more. You can draw this if you want or just listen in for a second because I want to really look at the where, the what, and the who in this process because in the parable, we have the younger brother and we have the older brother. We have the father as well, but let's just look at the younger brother and the older brother, because where has he been? Well, the reality is he actually starts out as someone who works. He he works as a child on, on his dad's estate. He's working in the context of the home until he asks for his inheritance. And then he goes off and he wastes everything about it. He wastes time, he wastes money, he wastes opportunity. But out of that journey, he steps back in a posture of wanting to go back into working, but this time as a slave. In his journey of what he did, there was this moment that he, he ran. And he, he started by running from. But as he leaned into desperation, as he got to the space of knowing he could not do anything on his own, he, he was hungry, he decided to run too. And as he positioned himself as a person in a, a posture or a space of return, repentant and humble, he received pardon. And a party. He received pardon. This is a journey of the younger brother. Here's the journey of the older brother. He starts out where he works. And he works a lot longer and more faithfully than his younger brother. But then he too also ends up in a space where he wastes. He wastes the opportunity by pouting on the porch. He wastes the the, the space of reconciliation because he's choosing opinion over love rather than love over opinion. He wastes. And what we don't know is actually what happens next because Jesus leaves this thing in a bit of a tension. We don't know what he decides. When it came to the idea of actually being willing to run, the older brother was not willing to rather run from or to. He he wasn't going to go anywhere because he's stuck. He was stuck in opinion over love. And when he returns from the field, when he comes back, instead of being able to step into the party, he ends up in a space where he pouts. Two brothers, same family, 
both having some good things, some, some not so good things. There's, there's flesh and spirit demonstrated in this, but here's the reconciling piece to this. No matter where you and I waste, no matter where you and I run to or from, no matter where we end up pouting, there's this reality of what the Father can do. The Father is the thing that changes and makes this whole equation different. So no matter what we're doing in life, He gives us purpose. He has a purpose and a plan for you. He wants to give you uh, specific value in your work and success in your work. But when you and I waste something, when we squander a moment, when we don't use resources or opportunities well, He is still willing and able to restore and reconcile. He works all things for the good of those who love Him. And he's willing to position us back into a place of, of working for him again, if we're willing to do it. When it comes back to actually running, when we turn towards him, he turns towards us and he runs towards us. If you found yourself in a place of wandering, the moment you turn back to God, he will run to you. But if you're going to sit in a space of being unwilling to run, then there's a bit of a stalemate moment as he waits for you to turn back to him. Because when we return with a repentant heart, when we return confessing and, and humbly before him, we receive pardon and we find peace. But if we're gonna sit in a space of saying that we're entitled to something else, or that we deserve something more, or, or we're gonna choose opinion over love, it preempts his ability to have a, help us step into the fullness of what it means to walk in relationship to him. My friends, where have you been? What will you do? And who will you be? These are all choices. And the older brother, younger brother dynamic, you may relate more to the younger brother, you may relate more to the older brother, but this was an invitation to right relationship with the father. Where have you been? What will you do? Who will you be? The, the reality is where we've been is not something we can change. What we will do next and who we will be is actually something we can C.S. Lewis said this. He said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. I think this positions us for the invitation today. Who will you be? What will you do? You need to acknowledge where you've been. That's confession. That's repentance. But deciding to return, humbly coming before him and choosing to be someone who chooses love over opinion, who chooses grace and mercy over judgment, who chooses to be more like the younger brother, that's the space that we can rewrite. We can write the landing from here. We can't change what was back behind. We can have it covered by the blood of Jesus, but today's the choice for what will be, what we will do next, and who we will be along that journey. All of those are choices. As you're processing down through what that looks like, you're figuring out, man, where, where have I been, what will I do, and, and who will I be? I want to share with you out of Romans 8, just kind of leave you in a processing of the reality between the two brothers for yourself. And hopefully those three questions will drive you down into relationship with God at a new level. But this is coming out of Romans 8 from Paul. He says this, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. The younger brother got caught up in this. 
but it's the older brother who actually got stuck in it. The younger brother returns. The older brother gets stuck. Specifically more verse 6 is where it ends up, that the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. He lacked peace. He couldn't get there. He lacked submission to the father. He wouldn't do what the father said and therefore couldn't please. He got stuck. But this is a choice. Just like you and I determining what we will do next and who we will be is a choice as well. And we all get to decide. The invitation for you and I out of Romans 8 to to have the mind controlled by spirit, not flesh, is a place that we find peace. It's a place that we get to rest in who he is and understand who we will be in him. You know, I don't know where you've been in your relationship with God. I don't know if you've found him early, still looking for him now. Found him late in life, maybe you found him but then wandered. The reality is, is that our Heavenly Father can restore a son and daughter. And you are a son and daughter of the Most High God. You have purpose. He has a plan for you. He has work to do. But it requires a posture of submission to him. And he can restore you. But that only comes through Jesus. And if you're not sure if you stand in right relationship with God, I actually want to encourage you to consider going through what's on the back side of the note guide today where it says how to start a relationship with God. There are three simple things that really relate to understanding where you've been, what you will do, and and who you will be. So there's an element of confession and repentance, a choice to submit, and a positioning of letting him transform and lead you into what it looks like to live in this life. And if you've never made that decision, I encourage you before you leave to pray through that prayer and to step into right relationship with the Father so that what's been wasted can be restored, where your return can be reciprocated, and that he runs to you and embraces you. And if you found yourself struggling with what hasn't been in life, you've struggled with opinion over love, he too can, he can set you free from that as well. But it's a choice. These things are choices. And my prayer is that you will choose to step into relationship and fullness in Jesus Christ. If you make that decision or have questions, you can talk to a leader at your campus. But we want to walk that journey with you knowing it's just the beginning. Because we, as we step into loving people in a way that's surpassing our opinion of them, God empowers us to do that in all that complexity. My hope is that you would choose who you will be. In light of where you've been, you'll choose what to do and who you'll be in relationship to Jesus out of his great love. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you did love enough to come. I thank you that you died and rose again. You conquered sin and death. You demonstrated love and risked. And I pray that you would find us faithful to honor your risk in honoring you in relationship. You are the only way that we navigate the complexity of this life. When we wander, when we feel like we're owed something, when we do work but struggle with how things go for other people, God, may you keep us from letting our opinion override our love. May we be a people who choose love over opinion. May we be a people who are willing to to submit and follow you each and every day of our lives for your glory. So in the next few moments as we worship, may you continue to lead, may you continue to speak, and may we understand and know what it looks like to know the fullness of your love and be able to share that with those around us in each of the complexities that we face. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.